Welcome to The Dead Format, episode 78. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, the Ryan Fitzpatrick of Legacy, Tom Smiley, and we're here to talk about Legacy. I I should have been ready for that. I wasn't emotionally Fitz magic, ready. Fitzmagic, bro? I wasn't, I wasn't emotionally ready for that. But you know Did, what? I feel like I am a very Ryan Fitzpatrick-y magic player, where like, I don't do anything for very long stretches of time, and then I just <laughs> I play like a Hall of Famer. And then it goes away after a while. So, congratulations to the Dolphins. They finished five and eleven. I'm really proud of them. I um, really love Fitzpatrick because he's like one of those everyman kind of guys who like like a Doug Flutie, you know. I he just you know what I even though he beat us today and he beat us when he played for Buffalo, I also like him. And when he played for the Jets once, but he uh, yeah, he's got like no ass basically. He's just like a goofy guy with a beard and comes out slinging he he's slaying it all over them today bro how about the jets finishing six and two this season last eight games it's pretty sick yeah it gives you hope for the future yeah i mean they're one game out of the playoffs right with the way the afc shook out i didn't i was so i wasn't following exactly what was going on with that i just i knew i knew what the pats had to do and it didn't get done and i'm I'm sad that they are probably not going to make a run. They have such a such a tough road ahead of them. Yeah. So we got a big episode today, obviously. Uh, we probably shouldn't spend too much time doing our little intro stuff. Uh, I'm not sure if we have anything to get out of the way, any housekeeping or anything, but um, you ready to start the decade? Yeah, let's do it. All right. What's going on right now? I had to get that in. I've never done a decade review show, so. What to... what what was that? So our listeners can. It's a decade under the influence by Taking Back Sunday. Oh okay, they're they're like a like an emo band. Yeah, I guess so. I I don't know really what to call them, but that's a that's a song definitely defined a decade ago. But yeah, dude, this decade. Honestly, looking back at it, I I started to do the research, and Channel Fireball had this article series, A History of Legacy. Have you ever read those? Not not since you linked them. Like, not before you linked them in the cast notes. Dude, they're sick. It was Adam Barnello was doing them, and then Bob Wong took them over at some point. Uh, some point being, I, I believe, Innistrad. And they're unbelievably... like. In doing this, like doing this research and stuff, you realize you really have to condense this information and pick out what's really important. And they did such a great job of that and, and made it very palatable and I think picked up on, on the really big overarching themes. So shout out to those two guys, first of all, to start. Definitely the primary source of this decade review. Yeah, let's let's okay. dive into it. I know cool, that... <sighs> yeah, we, we have so much stuff to talk about. You crushed the cast notes it kind of looks like a thesis paper outline. Yeah, it, it we'll see how it goes. All right. So, so before before we get into that, uh, what what are, what are the other things that we have in the intro? Oh yeah. So I was actually going to start there with with the decade is coming into this decade. And first of all, the different definition of decade we're using the the normal person definition, not the pedantic, because we're doing a magic cast. Someone's going to be like, uh, the decade is actually 2011 to 2020. 
because technically it is right but nobody nobody looks at it that way it's 2010 to 2019 so we're starting our decade with world wake and honestly the the environment coming into world wake right and ending it right now so the price of underground sea coming in was for for a decent shape one sixty dollars that's at the end of 2009 that's what i could find on ebay that's what i could find on uh goldfish went back to the end of 2010 but i went on uh salvation and the source to find prices wasn't was kind of actually difficult on the way back machine for star city games so sixty dollars 75 for near mint that's the price of a revised underground sea we just had in tune Metal Worker and Dream Halls unbanned at the end of, of 2009. So that's where we pick up our story. Yeah, this is when I was sort of getting back into competitive magic after, or even just magic in general, after a really long break. And an underground sea, or two underground seas being worth a Jace the Mind Sculptor is, that's, that's definitely where we started. Dude, so the, the Wayback Machine, I went way back 2010, Star City Games, and the first, uh, whatever they call them, clipping I could find was January 6th, and Jace the Mind Sculptor was pre-ordering for twenty two ninety five. It did not stay at that price for very long. Yeah, well, for whatever, you know, that one day, maybe it was just that one day in time, you could have snagged them. You could have got the whole set of... Uh, world wake including all the mythics i don't know why they felt necessary to note that but you get the whole set for 149 so yeah i think um i think it actually it, it didn't spike right away there was like the the jund deck that played Bloodbraid elf and really kind of kept jason check and then as soon as that rotated it was like jace city gotcha so beginning of 2011 maybe it started to take off maybe it was like really late in 2010 that Tibbler and a bunch of other people like really, really broke the J stack. Okay. So the other thing about this time, uh, just coming in is star city games was just picking up. And I should also add, you know, where we were at in our lives. You said you were just getting back into magic. I was about to move to Stanford, Connecticut. I had just gotten like a serious job, my first like serious job. Mm -hmm. And I look at these years, like 2010, 11, 12, as the most fun years of my life. And I definitely was not playing Magic. And I don't think that that's like a necessarily a coincidence, but I also don't hold it against Magic or think that like <laughs> I, I shouldn't be playing. Because I feel like that time had worn out by the time I started playing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I completely understand. When I think back in my life to the times that I had the most fun... It was definitely not magic time, but there were things right. that I were doing that I was doing that were like not sustainable to being exactly like a, like a yeah. rational adult. So you have to sort of like move on past those times. I think. Yeah, I was living with my friends uh, Jeff and Larry, and we we just had you know a crazy couple of years there, and I but I had moved in uh, April 2012 to Boston with my girlfriend, now my wife, Courtney. And so I was like looking to settle down and that's sort of when I found magic. So I didn't want anybody to interpret that the wrong way and like magic ruined my life or something. I know uh, Teabag Tom told me some people in the Discord are catching feelings, so I didn't want any cat boys jumping on me about that one. 
<laughs> well, okay. So, I... Yeah, I mean, we, we all understand. We all understand yeah. exactly what you're saying. So. so, one of the best quotes that I saw in all of this research was, SEG's just ramping up, 2010. February of 2010, Grand Prix Madrid had, is legacy and has 2,228 players, which is the largest Grand Prix ever to date in Madrid, legacy. And this Grand Prix was... Uh, one by Reanimator, there were two bank countertop decks, two ant decks, and three zoo decks. And the quote that Adam Brunello put in the uh, CFB History of Legacy article is, This event proved to Wizards of the Coast and to many others around the world that Legacy was a format that people wanted to play. They were excited to play. They loved to play. It was... It was the final message that said, take this format seriously because you can make a lot of money from it. Companies like SCG took notice and Legacy began to boom. So do you think that the success of that Grand Prix led to Star City focusing more on Legacy with their tournament series? Or were they already doing Sunday Legacy when that happened? The only event that I could find prior to that Grand Prix was a 2009, uh, I want to say it was in Richmond, Virginia, it was a 5K Legacy Open that they did. And then the YouTube coverage of Legacy from SCG starts at, I believe, December 2010. So it's like 10 months later. So we we can probably thank this Grand Prix for the sort of boom in Legacy that started at the beginning of the decade. Because that's... I mean, that's when so many people started to play this format. Yeah, and I'll be honest, man. I didn't know that. Like, I, I just thought we should do a, a decade recap. I didn't know that this event would line up so perfectly with this decade recap. It's pretty sweet. Better, but, better lucky than good. Yeah. <laughs> but as we mentioned, there was Jace the Mind Sculptor was printed. Uh, if you go back, I guess, a few months before, we'd had the fetch lanes come in with Zendikar. And we'd had Vengevine come in, or I'm sorry, we'd had Stoneforge Mystic come in with uh, with Worldwake, as, as well as uh, Jason Mind Sculptor. And also, I guess, I didn't really think about this, but like Eye of Ugin, although that doesn't become relevant until later. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Stoneforge Mystic got printed, but for the first, I don't know, year, year and a half, it was pretty much considered to be unplayable. Yeah, it wasn't really until Batterskull came around, I noticed. Yeah, I it saw a little bit of play with like, jit and sword in some green white shells um i think death and taxes was playing it to get to get jit i could be wrong about that but it was batter skull that really pushed stoneforge over the top yeah no doubt and this this uh a lot of these early grand prix i spent so much time looking at these lists man like three zoo two ant two bank countertops and one reanimator were the list that top aided this grand prix but you had a lot of deck techs that I found on YouTube, and a lot of people's lists were very divergent. It was just so much fun to look at this, and I really kind of understand now. When some of the players talk about like the golden age of Legacy, like the Source days, you know, there was really this feeling, I, I want to say akin to what Pioneer felt like a couple months ago, where it was like this wide open thing where you, you really could try anything and just stumble upon the best deck. It really looked awesome to me. Yeah, well, I mean, like, Zoo 
Zoo was one of the gatekeepers of the format. Where you're like, oh man, I really, I really need to have a positive zoo matchup, or else like I can't play this. Yeah. And the the gatekeeper of the format back then wasn't really like temp, temp, uh, tempo Delver decks like it is now. Now you're like, oh man, I can't beat Delver, I can't play this deck. Before you're like, wow, can I beat a bunch of one drops and some bolts? And you have way more options to be able to build a sort of divergent deck when that is the bar you need to get over because yeah. delver shells are just so hyper efficient that like it, it's a hard bar to get over agreed yeah and june so so after this grand prix we're in sort of a like a golden age of legacy legacy is really starting to pick up in the consciousness uh i saw some allusion to the fact that it was no longer the legacy community, but the magic community. Like people, people were taking legacy players more seriously as a part of the community. I can't really speak to you know how true that is. It's just what what I'm hearing secondhand. But it seems like the format was taken a lot more seriously after this event. Yeah, this was still a little bit early in my return, so I couldn't really speak to that. But I I do really remember that like it was standard, and standard was it. Now, people played other formats, but I think that Standard was still the only one that was ever really considered to be the serious format. Wow. Yeah, so. this is pre-modern, by the way. This is, you know, yeah. modern, yeah. Yeah. So, June 2010. So, we've got the printing of Rise of the Eldrazi in April. Rise of the Eldrazi brings Emrakul and Vengevine. Vengevine, that might seem, like, not that important. But it was extremely important because survival was a card back then. And you're going to have to speak to survival because I never played with the card. Yeah, I mean, okay. So I played survival before Vengevine as a as sort of like a tutor package mm-hmm. where I played like a four-color green deck that had a bunch of ETB creatures and you could use survival to go find them and ditch your extra mana dorks or walls to find something that was impactful. And, sort of like a chord deck or something? Uh, well, I mean, it was kind of like, like you would think of in a chord shell, yeah. But with the Legacy version, it provided you access to all of these Vengevines, which you, should, you could actually activate like really easily. And this is before you had cards like Surgical Extraction to be able to stop it. Yes. So the Graveyard Hate back then used to be like, people played Ley Lines... But it was a lot of Tormod's Crypt. The Graveyard Hate just wasn't really good. There was no Rest in Peace. It was it was really kind of like the time of Graveyard decks. Yeah, I saw a lot of, when I was going through these lists, I saw a lot of Fairy Macabs, Wheel of Sun and Moons. And uh, that might be it, really, other than the ones you mentioned. I guess Relic, too. Yes, uh, I, I missed Relic. I was thinking about Relic when I, when I started to talk about Spellbomb, but like... I around this time was when I I started to get into Legacy because I was working for a card store and picking up like playable cards as I went along and I wanted to get into Legacy so I I think that my first deck that I built was Burn then I built Dredge and playing Dredge in that in that era the Graveyard Hate was really really quite bad Ah, so you're kind of like Benjamin Button then huh? Uh, is it really Benjamin Button? Are you going backwards now? Because aren't these like the decks that you're playing again now? Yeah. 
like <laughs> just fuck with you're me. okay yeah that happened that happened but the first the first legacy deck i ever built was burned and then i put it down because i never wanted to do it again and i did <laughs> it again so yes we've come full circle but dredge dredge was my second deck nice so then june 2010 i noticed there's a big pickup at this time on the source a lot of like intro articles like pe- people coming into the game and, and wondering what's up but the big discussion around this time was mystical tutor so june 2010 they banned mystical tutor they unban grim monolith and they unban illusionary mask and I'm not sure if this is the point in time when Mask gets its current errata or if it had already gotten the errata and then been unbanned, but it came unbanned with this new errata that allowed for the Dreadnought deck to function. I'm not even sure how Mask functioned before or if it functioned at all, but it works the way that it currently does. Yeah, I I have never played that card, and um, I also don't know how it works. (laughs) <laughs> well so mystical tutor this is actually like one of the more interesting points of the decade i believe even though it's really early i thought madrid and the mystical tutor ban both in the first six months were two of the most important things that really happened because mystical tutor got banned and we did see reanimator one grand prix madrid but it didn't put any other copies in the top eight and it wasn't really a card that was showing up all that much it had like less than 20 percent metagame dom you know uh, proliferation, dominance. A lot of decks are only playing two of them, sometimes one of them. But basically, the the quote from Adam Barnello is on the Mystical Tutor ban was, it was backed by a discussion of a gentleman's agreement, of players choosing not to play the best decks but preferring to demilitarize, play fun cards, and enjoy the format more because of it. In short, the existence of Mystical Tutor was, in the DCI's opinion, a negative influence on the legacy metagame and despite not being overly powerful or dominant, it was detrimental to the health of the format. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I also think that there was kind of a big rules change that happened either right before it got banned or right after, because what you used to be able to do with Mystical Tutor is Mystical Tutor in your upkeep, and then beginning of your draw step, before you drew your card, crack your Lion's Eye Diamond, and then have your mana floating when you drew your card. Now, I don't know when that rule got changed, but you used to be able to, like, go get your ad nauseum in your upkeep, crack a lion's eye diamond or ritual, and then draw it and cast it in your draw step. Oh, uh, interesting. So that was that was something that changed. I'm not sure when, but I know that that was something that used to happen. Gotcha. Well, so this I thought this was really interesting because it shows, first of all, Wizards is trying to sculpt the format in a certain way, away from spells, in my opinion, away from the stack and towards the board, right? Towards, you know, playing creatures, towards what people think of as magic. Because, like, Worldly Tutor wasn't banned, you know, Mystical Tutor was. And it wasn't necessarily that people were complaining about it the way that, you know, they complained about, let's say, Deathrite Shaman or something along those lines. So I think that that's interesting. And I also think it's really interesting that they're acknowledging the existence of a gentleman's agreement because this is sort of what what how i feel and i think you feel to a degree maybe less about the format right now is that some cards like the the one specifically for me is grizzlebrand i feel like grizzlebrand actually probably should be banned but a lot of people just won't play it yeah i think there's consistency issues now with the mulligan changes too to where if you're playing a grizzlebrand deck 
it might seem like the best thing to do, but we haven't seen it perform very well. So I don't know if it's a gentleman's agreement. I think if we had another big tournament and people thought, all right, Grizzlebrand is the place to be, you'd still see a bunch of people playing Grizzlebrand. Yeah, that's definitely possible. But I think that, you know, people own the cards they want to play, they play the cards they want to play. And some people just are never going to sleep Grizzlebrand. And as we see fewer small tournaments, less incentive to actually be trying your hardest. I just feel like we're in a similar space now to where we were then. Whereas like maybe in the middle of this, it'd be hard to make that case because there were, you know, SCGs every weekend and more Grand Prix. So the the idea of a gentleman's agreement kind of breaks down around 2013, 2014, but I think it's probably pretty pretty close to to relevant again now. Okay. I can I can get behind that. So yeah, coming out of that ban, uh July twenty ten, GP Columbus. This was a smaller Grand Prix. It was, you know, 11.50 at this Grand Prix. But another Legacy Grand Prix. Stack top eight, bro. We had Saito. We had Martel. Caleb D. Uh, this guy, Brian Cook. Brad Nelson. And... Jason, Jason Ford. Jason Ford. So I got, I got a side story about Bryant. I went to Christmas dinner at my in-laws. So my wife's twin sister's house. All right? And I get there, and we start eating. And uh, first off, my my brother-in-law, uh, my wife's sister's husband, hands me a box. And he's like, Tom, I was over at my parents' house, and I dug these out of the basement. And they're magic cards. So he gave me a box, box of magic cards. And I was flipping through them, trying to see what was going on. And he had some mesmeric orbs and chalice of the voids. So automatically, I know what type of magic player he was, and I was I was absolutely <laughs> behind it. Nice. And, and then also, so his sister is married to somebody who lives in uh, who lives in New York, and he comes up to me and he's like, "Listen, I uh, I worked with Bryant Cook on his website." Oh. So, uh, my brother-in-law's sister is married to one of Bryant Cook's friends who we helped out with his website. And we talked about that. It was kind of fun. That's hilarious, man. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. why he had all those chalices? Yes. I mean, it, it might have been. Probably not. But <laughs> just that many degrees of separation from Brian Cook. Yeah. So basically, this Grand Prix, I love this top eight. It's a sick top eight. But the first thing I noticed looking through this top eight, the ages of the players are anywhere from 18 to 26 with tom martell standing out as the lone 28 year old well remember how we were talking about like what what is the peak performance for magic yes it's when you don't have fucking real life to deal with that's true yes i completely agree with you but that said i wonder what the average age for this tournament was because i i feel like this really you know, we've had some young top eights, and obviously we've had Clay Spicklemeyer win a Legacy Grand Prix. We've had uh, the Syracuse top eight of, the, of this past year from SCG was like three players under 21, I believe. Like, we've definitely seen young players do well in Legacy, but usually there's somebody like, uh, you know, like an Eli Cassis or a Joe Lissette in there, you know? And I feel like that's testament to the aging Legacy crowd, right? Because it sort of seemed like a pretty shifted 10 year demographic, except 
that, you know, now we have a couple kids thrown in. Do you know what I'm okay. saying? Yeah, no, I can see that. Like, obviously now, Everybody Legacy, looked is, so Legacy is more expensive. Legacy wasn't really expensive back then. Right, that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. And, like, the, the aging demographics that you were talking about, I'm sure, has something to do with it, too. Like, everybody got hooked. I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people got hooked on Legacy yep. in that 2011 to 2014 phase. Yes. When, when SCG was really pumping out the content and it was there all the time. And if you wanted to play in one of those tournaments, like, you were missing half of the event if you didn't play Legacy. So... I don't want to say that that was like Legacy's glory days, um, but I think that that Legacy could throw a football over that mountain during that time. It certainly does feel like we're still playing with the players that recognize the era or were friends with people from that era. You know what I mean? It was yeah. definitely a, a high watermark. I don't know, but it it really struck me the ages of these players, but the decks. Saito won with Merfolk. It was, he called it Blue-Black Merfolk. It was really Merfolk. Uh, Coralhelm Commander had just been printed in Rise of the Eldrazi, so that was the new edition. And then in the sideboard, the Black Splash was for three Engineer Plague, two Parish, and one other black card that's similar to Parish, but hits all creatures. So it was really pretty wild, man, like that you would reach that far in Merfolk to beat green creatures. Yeah, well, I think that I'm trying to think about what decks around that time would have really needed that. And I think it was just the survival shell, right? Yeah, I think it was in fear of like uh, lowercase survival, like any sort of survival build. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that that's that's completely fine for the metagame. If you're thinking about a deck that you want to go into the tournament that you don't want to lose to anything like that. Mm. right throw those cards in your sideboard yeah because fish always do, like fish already does a pretty good job playing against the fair blue so yeah. and the counter been... yeah yeah so then the saito beat martel who was on countertop this is like the four color blue deck from back in the day some people call it supreme blue i think yeah but... I, I i don't want to say that like rug this is what delver morphed out of kind like, of but it, it's kind of like Delver, the rug Delver before Delver, or good stuff Delver before that. It's a little bit of that and a little bit of Miracles, because this deck, every list I saw of this deck had four Tarmogoyf, sometimes as almost the only creature. Sometimes you see four Tarmogoyf, two click. Uh, there were some with like eight creatures, but they also would run two to four copies of this card, Fire Spout, which was their sweeper. It was two and a red or a green. And yep, it, either and it did... killed either ground or flying. Yes, or both. Yep. Depending on which colors of mana you spent. So, you know, that was pre-Verdict, pre-Terminus, and they're not going to play Double White Wrath of God, so they're playing this card that, that can sometimes, you know, be even better. And when Zoo's the deck that you're worried about, or Merfolk or whatever, three damage is fine. That was the second place deck, and it was a countertop deck, you know. And then Caleb Durwar playing Madness, and what was crazy to me about this deck is in the deck tech and stuff, they were talking about how he had a good matchup against combo because he had pressure combined with force of will. And he also had stifle and wasteland in his deck, so he considered himself good against control. He had no brainstorms, dude. 
He had Aquamoebas, Force of Wills, Stifles. So he was playing four traps, you know, plenty of blue and green mana. And, and uh, Noble Hierarchs, too. He had total, you know, tons of blue mana, fetch lands and everything, ways to shuffle his library, you know, survival. No brainstorm. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, right? Like you, you need some balance between a critical mass of creatures to be able to trigger your survivals, but like brainstorms, a card that in any deck like that today, you would never not play. You would never ever consider not playing brainstorm. So, so I just think that's a testament to where we were in Legacy at that time. Like in terms of consensus opinions, in terms of people brewing, nobody mentioned in the deck tech or you know the stuff that I saw that he didn't have brainstorm in the deck. People just talked about the list. You know, it wasn't like brainstorm had really solidified as as that card yet, in my opinion. Right. Well, I mean, if you look at if you look at the metagame breakdown from that event, yeah, brain the the first brainstorm deck is fifth, right? Yeah, it's zoo survival fish, which didn't play it. Goblins and then Bant Aggro, which probably played it. Yeah, so it's wild. the top the top four decks were not brainstorm decks. Oh yeah. That breakdown is actually not from that event, I'm sorry. But that, that is from twenty ten through October. Oh, okay. But yes. So the other decks in this top eight, there's a standstill deck that Jason Ford was playing that's a bugged standstill deck with three Jaces. It's the only Jace deck, but it had um, deeds, deed. deeds and standstills. Yeah. Deed, and deed being able to not wipe planeswalkers. Yeah, was was quite quite just awesome back in the day. And a lot of people talked about the deed deck in their deck text for this event. So obviously this was on people's radar. Uh, it it kind of disappears. I see a lot more blue white standstill after this, but it seemed like it was a big deck. Then Bryant playing Tess. I'm pretty sure it's the same six he's currently playing. <laughs> uh, Doomsday show, there was a show and tell Doomsday deck that Chris Gosselin was playing that was pretty cool but I think it was just like a one off because I didn't see anyone else talking about it or playing it yeah well TES back in the day I remember playing Bryant it wasn't 2010 but it was close to that and he was playing the five color gemstone mine silence like yeah yeah it, it, everything, everything was so completely different yeah it really was I was just fucking out but Corey Age was playing Sneak and Show he actually called it Sneaky Show. And there's uh, Embercool, which is the new card, but then there's also the, the Grizzle brand is Woodfall Primus, which is like a 6-6 six, six Persist creature. Yeah, oh, Cube All-Star. You ever sacked that to a natural order? Uh, I've had it happen against me. Oh. Yep. That, Terastodon. Okay, we don't have to talk about Cube, but yeah. Masquerade. Before, before Grizzle brand. I mean, it was different. People played, like, Progenitus, too. I don't know if he played it, but the creature package was way different back in the day. It really was. And this was sort of like a new thing because Emrakul had just been printed. So you had Woodfall Primus, and now you have Emrakul. So this deck really sort of was just picking up. And then the the Rogue deck everybody was referring it to in this top eight was Brad Nelson with Junk. Which was four bobs, four goys, and four nether reliquaries. And no chalice. It did have mox diamonds, but it wasn't a chalice deck. It didn't really see many chalice decks in this era. I feel I mean, like this is DJ GJ's deck. Yes, yeah. That he's been playing since 2010. 
Yes, basically. And it was uh, it was just a super fair deck, you know, Thoughtseize, Inqu uh, Inquisition U, which was another new card. Him to Turok, and yeah, it was sort of like a dead guy with Tarmogoyf and Knight. So he obviously did well, he made it to top 8. And when all the players in their top 8 profile were asked about the banning of Mystical Tutor and unbanning of Grim Monolith, and how that affected their deck selection... And Bryant said he would have played two Mystical Tutors if they hadn't been banned. Saito said he would have played Ant. And everybody else said that they made no changes to their deck. I mean, Saito's the smartest, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> probably, but it, it just it struck me that, you know, after the death rate ban, could you imagine people saying, oh, I didn't make any changes to my deck, really? Like, it, it sort of undercuts just how preemptive this ban was, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. so yeah you alluded before to this metagame breakdown somebody on the source did this in october of 2010 the metagame uh through i believe it was either through august or through september but zoo was the top deck at 10 percent, followed by uh survival macro archetype and merfolk and goblins at nine percent bant they call it aggro control at seven percent storm at seven percent and then at three percent threshold land still aggro loam dredge death and taxes reanimator lands uh supreme blue they call it fairies dread still and then miscellaneous is 27 percent <sighs> yep. so that that's legacy right that, yeah. that's what it was and that's really pretty sweet and yeah, I, your point I about agree. brainstorm. Right? We, we hadn't really entered the spell-based format that we see today. It was heavily creature-based. It was super tribal synergistic. Like the tools that we have today weren't around then, and you saw goblins and fish taking up like a very significant portion of the metagame. Well, yeah, that's what's really funny to me is we think of the modern days as they're printing threats rather than answers. But really, the answers the answers that we think of were more like 2012, like like Terminus, Verdict, you know, Abrupt Decay. Those are all 2012 printings. So it's kind of interesting that there was a time before they had those answers. The, yeah, there definitely, definitely was. So October of 2010 brought with it, uh, what was that set called? Uh, Mirrodin, Scars of Mirrodin. Scars of Mirrodin. Uh, Necrotic Ooze. So you had Devourer, Trike. The the survival deck became a combo deck. Yep. That and... was my EDH deck for a while with Mimeoplasm. Okay. But I, I, I have a stack of like 20 or 30 uh, um, Necrotic Oozes nice. because of thoughts of, of that deck. So immediately, it, everybody's mind goes to banning. And... The, there were some polls that I read about whether it should be Vengevine or Survival because the problem with this deck is it was a combo deck that could still beat you fair because it was just a Vengevine deck, right? And some people thought that Vengevine was what had broken Survival and it would be okay, but ultimately Survival was the card that got the axe in December of 2010. Yeah, and I think that like if we opened up Legacy to Survival now, it would probably be a little bit different 
given the graveyard answers that we have, like maybe survival is just too break- broken for legacy anyway because of the tempo it takes to be able to go, like churn through it. Yeah. But that that card was too powerful for the format at that time for sure. Yeah, and one thing also right before the survival ban, there was a worlds in 2010 that was played in like Kuala Lumpur or some somewhere exotic like that. That was, was like, like split format, right? Yes, and there were four rounds of legacy. And I watched a Josh Utter Layton deck tech for the deck that eventually became elves, I guess. And they they were referencing like the elves deck in extended as having this nettle sentinel, uh, heritage druid glimpse of nature combo mm-hmm. and he talked about adding that to the deck and then having it be a survival deck it was still a survival deck but it also had natural orders in the sideboard and he had four natural orders and two progenitus in the sideboard but usually the deck would win by going off you know making a bunch on a glimpse turn making a bunch of mana with heritage druid metal sentinel and having regal force Yeah, this was. Sorry. Yeah, this was before Crater Hoof. So yeah. you think about all of these engines that we have now, and how those engines were around before these super impactful threats that we're going to start to talk about very soon. Yeah, it was really wild to me that, you know, it, it was crazy. He had like two Wyvern symbiotes and only one Elvish Visionary they talked about as a survival target. Uh, just like the you know the cards that were in this deck, but obviously he he figured something out, and I believe he said he went four zero in the legacy portion with that deck. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So yeah, twenty eleven. This is the year that everything changes. Yeah. So up up until now, we're talking about like the glory days of legacy when like you could play Zoo when the metagame was wide open, when there were gentlemen's agreements. Mm-hmm. And now 2011 happens, and let's talk about it. So 2011, the first set is Mirrodin Besieged, and it brings with it uh, Green Sun Zenith is the big card. Phyrexian Revoker and Mirren Crusader are some smaller ones, and I believe there's a Nexus in there too. But the the big one is really Zenith, uh, I believe. SCG also announces that they're going to have 29 Legacy Opens this year. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the big news in 2011. There's a Grand Prix in Providence scheduled for May. But the first looks at the metagame come from SCG. And they show that in the spring of 2011, before New Phyrexia, the best decks are High Tide and Countertop because Time Spiral had come back. Yep. So this was the time where I was first really, really getting dialed into Legacy. I started running Legacy events at the store that I was working at that had uh, local players like Rodney Bedell and Ethan Formicella and uh, Warren Connell, if, if you know any of those people. But used to used to play Legacy every Saturday, and now we start to get all of the cards that like really kind of define what Legacy is today. Or up until this last year that completely threw everything else off but we get we get probe we get delver we got in uh misstep for a little bit we got surgical extraction and dismember 
scavenging ooze and flusterstorm that year was huge for legacy playable cards it really was like sometimes you don't think of innistrad being 2011 you know it's, it's more of a 2012 thing but it was technically a 2011 set and because of that i have to i have to consider 2011 the most impactful year for legacy oh absolutely so yeah there was sort of the summer of 2011 was sort of an anomaly because of misstep like it was the, the months that misstep was legal yeah they, they were wasted months where like yeah you couldn't play one drops anymore that was the time where like goblins disappeared yes and yeah. it never really came back i know there's some people who now are like no goblins is back but up until the printing of misstep goblins was a tier one deck and then it was just gone yes yep and there was a grand prix in providence in 2011 uh james rinkovich took it down with bant there was a hive mind deck uh that brian elliott was playing that was uh show and tell but you know with the hive mind combo and Emberpool. sort of like a precursor to omni i guess mm-hmm. and then that reed duke national order rug deck that you'd actually i believe talked about last episode or a couple episodes ago maybe uh paulo vitor was playing bug landstill uh wilson hunter was playing blue red painter John Kubelis playing Zoo, Alex Magilton, Merfolk, and Owen Turtonwall, Blue White Stoneblade. So this is another awesome top eight of all these decks, you know. Uh misstep fucking things up or not. This this was what it was, and it seemed pretty sweet to me. Yeah, this so this tournament was the first one that I ever like prepared for. Like Ooh. I had played in some tournaments before my my coming back. But I actually like tested a bunch for this Grand Prix, and uh, we all got so hungover the night before the Grand Prix that I just never woke up. And uh, my friend JT, who who drove with somebody else, ran out of gas on the way, so none of us made it to that event. Awesome! What were you gonna play? I was gonna play Dredge. Okay. So that's that's what I had built at the time. Gotcha. I didn't I didn't get on the Bant train until a little bit after. Okay. So yeah, this was sort of that that weird period that we mentioned, but uh, Jesse Hatfield actually um, coming into actually first let's talk about the fall. Innistrad gets printed and Misstep gets banned. And there's a Grand Prix immediately afterwards in Amsterdam. This is the one where there were three or four Bant Stoneblade decks that finished in the top 32. Yes. That made me build Bant for the first time. Nice. And I completely stripped the idea, uh, like the structure and, and everything from the people who played in this event. And I was hooked on Legacy after I started playing that deck. Yeah. And one of the decks in the top 32 also was Andre Strasky, uh, who was 16 years old at the time. I believe he's, yeah, he's, he's uh, probably 25 now. But he had Rug Delver, and it was just Rug Delver like we think of it now. It was four Mongoose, four Delver, four Goyf. He did have a Snapcaster in there, but the same spell suite and lands that we think of as being Rug Delver now. I mean, there was that anomaly that was the Ren period, but... Just like the the tight Rug Delver list. There were a lot of people fucking around with Rug Delver at the time, but he was the one who 
who really had it stuck there, as Bob pointed out in his article. And it's just hilarious that that deck has been around for so long, yeah? Yeah, it's it's almost approaching a decade. Yeah, and this was, in my estimation, the the first modern deck, I guess. Like, the deck that you'd still show up to Legacy and see and not think twice about it. This is the first one of those appearing, is Rug Delver in 2011 in Amsterdam. Yeah, I, I mean... You still see Storm and Reanimator, and if you look at the shells from like like far before, they're very similar to what people are playing today. But that deck is probably the closest match card for card that you would see right now, for sure. Yeah, I mean they're all missing big parts though. Like Storms at this point is still playing ill-gotten gains, and Reanimator doesn't have Grizzlebrand, right? Right. Yeah. There's no Past in Flames, and there's no there's no Grizzlebrand yet. Yeah. They're playing like. Uh, the blue parader. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't remember the name of it, but and they the, just got they the just got Elishnorn. I believe it, it was Elishnorn that they just got. So, well, so before Grizzlebrand or Iona, they played the blue one. So oh, Jin was like two blue and eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jin Jin Taxus. That kind of. I remember when Grizzlebrand was printed, people were like, "Well, like." It's not better than Ginger Taxes, so why would we play it? Gotcha. That I remember that conversation happening. Okay. And yeah, one of the things that that I believe people were talking about for this Grand Prix was having multiple Caracases, even within the reanimator decks, because of the le- how the legend rule worked at the time, just to get rid of other people's uh, Caracases. Yeah. But then we don't see any reanimator on top eight because apparently everybody brought enough hate. Yeah, I think that Dredge Dredge was a deck that people needed to be prepared for. So Graveyard Hate was definitely something that people packed. And that old legend rule definitely had some implications. It was better than the first legend rule where if somebody played a legend, you couldn't play your copy at all. Yeah, yeah. So there'd be mono red decks playing Telerian Academy that they'd just drop on turn one so you couldn't play yours. Yeah. But... So yeah, Jesse Hatfield at the end of 2011 dropped uh, an article, I believe on the source, that was the shifting metagame of 2011. And really it just highlights how Delver changed things because we had Merfolk go from pretty much 10% every month until Delvish printed and then go immediately down to 3%. We had Zoo go from 7% before Delvish printed to 3%. Goblins go from 7% until New Phyrexia with, with Misstep and Batterskull, it goes down to 1%. Basically just disappears. Natural Order Rug shows up after Reed Duke starts playing it and then disappears either when Misstep gets printed or when Delver gets printed, however you want to look at it. But Rug Delver takes all that meta share. And Stoneblade first shows up with the printing of Batterskull and it immediately goes between 10 and 20%. Yeah, well, I think that there are a lot of people who are playing Cobblade and Standard that saw that they could make the leap to Legacy really easily. And to be honest, you look at like the 2009-2010 blue decks, where especially the ones that were playing like Click and Goyf as their threat, you take all of those powerful spells that are still around in Legacy today and you add what that deck was missing, which was a turn one clock, and it kind of like revolutionized everything. 
Yeah, and I guess we'll just spoil it now. My card of the decade is definitely Delver of Seekers. Like after looking at the decade and, and filling in the blanks I didn't have, because I've always sort of taken Delver as a given, and when people talk about banning Delver, I'm just like, whatever, I'm not really thinking about it. But it totally, I think, changed what legacy, what, what's possible in legacy, and what, what what's optimal, I guess. Like It just doesn't make sense to play certain certain combinations of things when you have Delver and Days available. Okay. I think that Delver is a great choice. You could... I think you could make the case for Death Rite. Well, yeah, it's banned. I mean, I wouldn't... Oh, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't make the case because it was banned, but I guess if you add it in, it warrants consideration, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you on Death Rite Shaman. If it uh Yeah. Sorry, I agree with you on Delver's Secrets for sure. If Delver's if Death Rite's out of it. Yeah. 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 So we obviously we had twenty nine legacy opens in twenty eleven. We had a lot more focus on the format. There was still like a wild west field of things, but we can see it starting to solidify around the printing of Delver where these these lists that have been played before are starting to get pushed out. And the printings in 2012 are really probably second to 2011 in terms of impact. Yeah, it all it all happened in a very tight time frame. Like we got all the we got Delver, and then we got Grizzlebrand, Thalia, and Terminus with, with Deathrite as well. Um, those two years put a ton of legacy playable cards into the format and it was it was a ton of fun yeah it's crazy man so first just to start off the year in january there's thalia cage uh graphic's cage faithless looting lingering souls but those those were the big the really big ones were thalia and cage i would say from dark ascension but that pales in comparison to Avacyn Restored, where you get Grizzlebrand, Terminus, Cavern of Souls, Crater Huff, and Treat the Angels. Those are like five huge printings. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, those, the Terminus and Entreat were the cards that really allowed miracles the way that we think about it today oh, to yeah. be born. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And Grizzlebrand, obviously, that's... I don't need to really say anything about Grizzlebrand, but Cavern, maybe the impact wasn't felt immediately, and it still might not be recognized for how powerful it is. But I think it's a... As much as people hate the card Cavern of Souls, I do think that it has like a, a good place in the metagame if, if Delver's going to be there and going to be as powerful as it is. It at least lets you have some game with some of these decks like goblins or, you know, merfolk, some of these creature cemented decks. Yeah, I think that really Cavern of Souls didn't start to get as much respect as it deserved until Eldrazi came around. Yeah. So it, it kind of was under the radar for a while. Yeah. I'm not sure what month it was that Strix and Shardless were printed in that Plane Chase product, but that was like a pre-made deck, basically. <laughs> You know, yeah, Shardless Bug came. I apart. hated playing against that deck. Yeah, I was always playing like, like blue white based stone fort shells, and fuck that deck. I never enjoyed it. Like I built it and didn't like playing it. But uh, Omni, it's funny because M13. This is now I'm starting to play the game. M13. I didn't realize Omniscience was a new card, man. I thought it was like a reprint when I was opening them. But well, 
they so dream halls used to be a card right and they used to be like the show and tell dream halls version that played uh conflux and a whole bunch of multicolored cards that allowed you to do some crazy shit so like that idea was there but you had to jump through a ton of hoops to get there where omni saw like got printed and you're like oh you don't need any of that you just play this card yeah and then obviously return to ravnica which is the first set when i was really bad like drafting and stuff uh death right shaman we don't need to talk about that how impactful that was it would definitely be in the top top two or three printings of of the decade if it had been banned so also abrupt decay hugely important supreme verdict and rest in peace also uh, I believe those are all the huge printings from Ravnica, but those are all very impactful. Yeah, and... rest rest in peace. The format kind of like lived in fear of graveyard decks. Yeah. And we weren't we, we didn't really have great graveyard hate and surgical and rest in peace were just like two two pieces that completely changed that for sure. Yeah. So someone did a breakdown on the source that was the decks that top 80 Grand Prix or one opens in the year 2012. And they had it broken down by aggro, control, and combo. And the aggro category was dominated by Delver. It was over 70% Delver, the majority of which were rug Delvers, but there were some bugs, blue reds, and blue whites showing up. But there were, you know, like one or two zoos. Really, it was just Delver was aggro at that point. Yeah, I, I remember that time. The control decks were one-third Stoneblade, one-third Miracles, and one-third Maverick, which I think is pretty base to put Maverick in the control decks. It's not something you you really see anymore, but I think it, it does deserve to be there. Yeah, I I mean, sure. <laughs> and then the combo decks the combo decks were flat, man. They, like All these decks had between 1% and 3% meta share, which is... Elves, Dredge, High Tide, Sneak, Ant, and, you know, every other combo that you can think of. Yeah, well, imagine, imagine like, being a combo player in, like, kind of a balanced format when now all of the blue decks have a one-cost threat that's going to kill you and are playing four Stifle and a bunch of soft counters. It's not a good place to be for combo. But it was still pretty balanced, man. These were pretty much one-third, 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 and that might just be... A variant of the gentleman's agreement where people were still playing the combo decks they enjoyed just because those those were the decks they wanted to play but there were still a lot of combo decks and i guess dredge would still be like uh similarly valid whether people were playing delver or not right there are some decks like that but yep so another note that the person made was brainstorm or this might have been bob's note actually brainstorm reached 59 percent of the metagame at this point yeah, Which, well, wait for the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was a Grand Prix in March of 2012. So this is comfortably post-Misstep, uh, comfortably post-Delver. And there's some talk about the trinity of Stoneblade, Maverick, and Rug Delver forming. And this is something that's been alluded to many times since, like this this glory days of Legacy where the, with this holy trinity of Delver, Maverick, and Stoneblade. Yeah, I mean those were those were the decks that you would expect to see when you showed up to a legacy event. 
right? Like, and they're all, they're all like fun fair decks, right? Yes, the there were interactive matches where, yeah. as long as you weren't being like stifled and wastelanded out of the game by Rug Delver, you had good games. So, I really enjoyed playing those matchups. I, I played a lot of them back then. Yep. Yeah, and I once I got into it, I started playing those decks as well, and I really enjoyed it. But the all three of those decks top aided this first Grand Prix, Grand Prix Indianapolis in March, and I thought it was interesting because all three of the decks seemed very self aware to me. It was Caster, Martell, and Dan Jordan, uh, respectively, playing the three decks. Yeah, and the Rug Delver deck had two fork bolts in the main. The the Esper Blade deck had uh, Tower of Magistrate in the main. Yep. And the make, Maver- make your opponent's germ token yeah. fall off. Yeah. And the Maverick deck, for its swords, it was playing Sword of Light and Shadow and Sword of Body and Mind as its swords. So it seemed like all the decks were very aware of the metagame at this point in time. Yep. So it, it's very different than 2010, in my opinion. This is like people are now pretty sure about what they're going to see at this Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, July 2012 comes around, the Unbanned Land Tax, which, other than Parfait, I don't think I've ever seen. Well, there, yeah. were, there were some Miracle Shells trying to, trying to play Scroll Rack with Land Tax as a draw engine, if you think about that back in the day. Okay. Um, but it really, it never did anything. Gotcha. And then there's this, this Grand Prix... There's actually two Grand Prix in July 2012. There's Atlanta, which is won by Rug Delver and has triple-digit attendance, which is kind of weird. But there's also Ghent, which has you know 1,600 players, and it's won by Ant. There were a, a few Miracles decks in the top 16, and they, they start to resemble like the current Miracle shells we've seen. And the Ant deck obviously has Past and Flames now. And the... Yeah, the... Uh, the modern miracles decks with like you know terminus and entreat they were playing like two entreats and three terminus the numbers weren't exactly where we would think now they weren't playing ponder yet but we're basically on to miracles at this point mm-hmm. so yeah then death race printed we're in 2013 and the the grand prix denver at the beginning of 2013 we see the first appearance of a lot of decks that are like considered modern decks i guess or at least in the death right era like elves punishing john esper Deathblade, bog delver with drs yep this was the sort of coming out party for death right shaman yeah really seeing competitive play people finally started to put together what the card could do and i don't want to say that legacy was like behind the time but legacy innovation didn't happen very quickly at all back then it it really took like a year for a lot of these super powerful cards just to catch on now excluding delver and true name those cards kind of got picked up right away but a lot of cards that people were like why were people not playing this right off the bat it's just because everything was so slow to develop yeah and after ravnica there was uh gate crash and Dragon's Maze, which is historically underpowered. And then Theros block started. And I don't really think that there's many cards that we need to talk about in there, other than, I guess, Burn gets Eidolon. 
That might be actually the most important printing from any of those three sets, except there was a commander product with <laughs> true name nemesis. You want to speak yes. to this? Oh man. So I was lucky because I was still working in the card store that I was running tournaments out of. So I got four copies of that, that pre-con people were driving down to the grand prix DC, stopping at every Walmart, trying to get them hundred dollar card at the event. And, uh, wow. Am I glad that I played that card? So that's Washington in November. Yeah, I uh, that was the first Grand Prix that I ever got pro points in. Nice. And I, I remember, I, I remember that event still, and I had so much fun playing it. Um, my my entry and my hotel, like everything, was provided for me. Um, Tom Shea gave it to me as a wedding present, and I had such a fun time at that event. That was where I got my beta lightning bolt signed by Chris Rush. We went we went out to uh like the like the event dinner and I got to sit with him and that it was just it was such a great weekend. Oh sick. Yeah, it's awesome, man. So did you drive down there? Uh no we flew. Oh. And actually who so my wife is sitting here, she's she's sitting next to me. What? This we, whole time? This whole time. Now she Why didn't you fucking it. say something? Well I'm just I'm saying we flew down. And because we booked our tickets late, we didn't have seats together. And I sat next to Ari Lax on the plane flight on the way down there. And she was sitting like a row or two in front of me. And we just talked magic nonstop. It was, nice. it was fucking awesome. We probably pissed everybody else around us off. But uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was kind of fun. Sweet. Yep. Yeah, Ari, that's like uh, Legacy Days, right? Yeah. Oh, all right. So, like, I remember round 13, I mulliganed to five and kept a no-lander and won. And it was the most pumped that I've ever been because I needed to, like, win that to stay alive to top to top 16. <clears throat> and uh, it was against elves. And I kept, like, kind of like a perfect hand as long as I drew a land. Yeah. But he petered out, and I drew my land on turn three, and then I drew a land on turn four, and the game ended with me having a JIT-equipped Batter-Skulled True Name Nemesis, and it was fucking awesome. Nice. Yeah, it's my Glory Day story. Sick, bro. So yeah, that is... At this point, I'm comfortably involved in the game, and one of the, one of the reasons I would say that I really became involved is the after uh theros now we're into 2014 cons of tarkir the reprint of the fetchlands this was this was huge in my estimation for the the popularity and availability of legacy because the price of flooded flooded strands and and uh polluted deltas, polluted deltas were a hundred dollars i sold my polluted deltas for 90 dollars a piece to play to pay for my wedding Wow. Uh, this nice. is, I met, I met you for the first time. Yep. Yep. At this SCG where I was trying to sell cards and you did not believe they were real because of the prices I was selling them to. Yeah. Uh, selling them to you for. So I walked up to SCG and I ran SCG out of money and walked away with a fat pack box full of cash. It was fucking <laughs> awesome because I had been like collecting and basically using all of the money that I made working at the comic book store yeah. just to buy more cards. So 
I had worked there for a few years running tournaments and doing FNMs and like just generally organizing and doing all the buying. So I, I had all of this product that I was like, all right, now I need a bunch of money for a wedding. And uh, Star City, Star City paid for my wedding. That's awesome, man. And yeah, you offered me a trop and a Volk for 250 all day. And I did not believe it was real, but that was my loss, I guess, because I probably ended up paying twice that. Yep, they were they were definitely real. I apologize that we didn't know each other better back then. <laughs> but the uh, there's obviously the Delve card fiasco, Treasure Cruise, and Dig Through Time. And I was you know fully invested in the format at this time, so there's the whole people's misevaluations of the card and Bob breaking it with blue red, and then the everything leading up to Grand Prix New Jersey, right? That was such it's a like this time perfect too. storm. And there wasn't a big legacy event really. For in the middle of 2014 at all. We'd actually seen the amount of Legacy Grand Prix peak and then slide off for only two at the beginning and end of 2014. So there was there were plenty of SCGs, but it was really culminating in this, this first uh, North American Grand Prix at the end of 2014. And obviously everybody knows 4,003 players, biggest Grand Prix by a mile to date. And three Three flights of players... This was the first one where I had like a, a day one where I thought, all right, I'm in this. Like I can compete for it. I ended up going eight and one on day one. And I think I finished in like 16th place. And I was so pumped to get That's ready for sick. day two. So pumped. That's awesome, man. I started out 6-0 and then dropped three in a row. My, my seventh round opponent tried to cheat against me in game two. And it resulted in this big judge call. And he didn't get DQ'd, but I I lost game three. And then losing after somebody cheats, you know, it was a fair game three. Yeah. But just the fact that he had tried to cheat against me in game two, I was on tilt already. Losing that match just was like a, such a heartbreaker for me. I know that feeling. Yeah. And then I just slid off to blue-red in the last two rounds and, and felt pretty awful. But it was such an amazing event, like in, just in terms of the size and what it was for Legacy, right? So my, my wife was at that event with me and my friend Justin and my friend Jeremy and we, can I tell the story? What is it? And the story about how you couldn't play? Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we, we go to the event and we, we go hard Friday night. We get down there, like we finally check in. We got a bunch of people with us. And it's my birthday. It, it was, it was her, <laughs> it was, it was her birthday and, um, we got to the event site and she had her deck in her hands and she was trying to shuffle it and was still like not hung over but you know that feeling you get where you wake up and like you know you're still drunk like you're not hung over like like that sort of feeling mm. she she could not play because she couldn't shuffle her deck <laughs> so that's yeah that was a that what was deck was she going to play uh, what do you remember? What you were gonna play? Uh, that's what I would normally be playing. I think she was probably trying to play Burn. That was gotcha. that has been her deck for a while. Okay. Yeah. Damn, that's unfortunate. Yep. But at least she got the playmat, right? Yep, playmat and the sleeves, which we still have in a box in my closet. Because I was like, oh man, these are gonna be worth a ton of money. So now I have a small, small box full of brainstorm sleeves. Bro, me too. I gotta break those out at some point. 
they're trash sleeves, but I figured like that event, you know. I use I them want, for limited sleeves now. I wanted to savor that event, so I kept the sleeves. It was a great. That was a great event. I lost to uh, Ellie. I lost to um, uh, who was a storm player who top aided. He's like a New York, New Jersey guy. Uh, uh whatever. I, I, two of my losses were to people in top eight. I remember that dude playing Landstill, Nam Fan, or whatever. Top aided. I remember uh, Miracles player. I want to say Schoeniger, but I'm not positive. My friend Joey Santa Messino top aided with Metalworker. Oh, right. Yep. And uh, Tom Ross with Infect, Brian Brown with Blue White Red. Yep. The, the same deck I was playing, basically, except I didn't have to. Maybe, maybe it was a top 16, not a top 8. Okay. But yeah, that was a. That was really a sick event. I think everybody's gonna know what we're talking about no matter when you started playing Legacy because it was such a, such a touchstone moment I'd say for for what the format is. That uh, just seeing that many people there in three flights, playing in this tournament with like no good food around in the middle like, of nowhere was outstanding. And honestly, like fifty vendors, it had to be fifty vendors, right? Oh, it was just fucking crazy. I've never seen crazy. that many vendors, never seen that many players. It was just like it. It was, I guess, what you think of Vegas now, except it was completely unprecedented and in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I. So I've never been to a Grand Prix in Vegas. I've actually never been to Vegas. Wow. Which is probably why I'm still here. Bro, um, how do you make it 42 years without ever going to Vegas? Listen, I, there are some things that regardless of my poor self-control and decision-making, I know that I should just not do. And going to Vegas is one of those things. What if Vegas was an instance and wow, would you have been there? Absolutely. I'd be there right now. <laughs> Absolutely there right now. I'd have so, no gold. Yeah. I'm not a huge Vegas fan for what it's worth, even though I love gambling and I love drugs and, you know, it, it seems like I would love Vegas. I, I really don't. So Good for you. Yep. So yeah, after that, it's all it's all just sort of downhill, right? We've got we had to suffer. So January 2015, we've got the banning of Treasure Cruise, which and which they probably should have done before. Like yeah, they should have banned it with Dig. That card was too powerful. I loved playing with. No, it. no, no, no. They didn't ban Dig. Oh, they so banned Cruise, and then they later Cruise. they banned Dig. Yeah, okay. so all of 2015, and this is this is why I'm sort of sour on 2015. We've got the addition of Mentor at the beginning of the year, and uh, I believe Angler came in, and those were relevant. And then also, you know, Colagon's Command was printed in the Dragon set, and then Battle for Zendikar was the, the Fall set, which didn't really add much of anything. But... Really, that whole year, because January Cruise was banned, and it wasn't until December that Dig was banned. So that whole year, really, Miracles and Omni and Grixis Delver were the only correct decks to be playing. Yeah. I mean, like, the mono-blue show-and-tell deck was really the the deck of that year. It was was too good, yeah. Yeah. And I, I tried to fight it. There was stuff like, you know, the Death Mentor list and... I really tried. I was playing like main deck meddling mages within like a wizard deck with caverns. I was doing all sorts of weird shit to try to attack the metagame. And it, it was just really, I, I, I think that it was just broken and dig needed to go. And it took, it took way too long. It took 11 months between those two bands. So, yep. 
I no, I completely agree. Wasn't a big fan of 2015. And that's honest. 2016 though. Or yeah. do we have more to talk about with 2015? No, I was just gonna say that's probably the year I played the most legacy games, honestly. But it's unfortunate. I think it was 2016 for me. It could be, yeah. So 2016. This is the year we actually start hanging out, right? Yes, this is the year that we met. Yeah. So no, actually. Start- so we had met twice before, but this is this is yeah. You're right. Yeah. This is when we actually started to get to know each other. So it starts out with Oath of the Gatewatch. We got Thought Not Seer, Matter or Shaper, Reality Smasher, that kind of shit. People are getting banned for spoiling cards. You know, it's the Gamer Gate. Everybody that was hates that everybody long else. Ago? Yeah, dude. Oh man. So it's like you know the community starting to split. There's all that shit going on. I remember being uh like around the holidays like like looking at spoilers and stuff and you know there's like the judge lawsuit going on now it's like this really weird energy and modern's broken because i still in the format and eldrazi temple and everything so legacy eldrazi that's when i got onto white eldrazi man i i saw those cards and i was like i want to make this white eldrazi list work and I didn't have, there were a few key pieces that I was missing from like the Eldrazi deck, but I was proud of myself for identifying a deck that, that was pretty, pretty close to, to a real deck. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. So that was cool. That was like that, my first, my first experience with that, I'd say. That like, winter, the Eldrazi winter really led my Grand Prix testing for Columbus because that year my friend Jeremy moved upstairs we started playing a ton of like just a ton of magic in general and I I think that 2016 to 2017 stretch was when I played the most magic and definitely had the most success nice yeah yeah you definitely did so that was um what uh June maybe July Grand Prix Columbus yeah Columbus was like uh I remember driving out there I drove out with Matt Kiefer and Barra, and uh, oh man, that was so. That was the first Grand Prix I ever nine owed. Oh, um, sick! So I, I ate one Vegas, and then I had the I had a nine owed on day one, and I was like, wow, like this can really happen. Like I beat Tom Ross, like I I beat a bunch of people. It was fucking awesome. And then day two happened, and I had like a like an okay day two, but I, I remember playing against Jerry Thompson in the feature match. And I was just like, wow, there are some people that are just way better at the game than me. And it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't because, like, I was making mistakes in Starstruck. Just, like, I realized then there was a different level of playing Magic. And I played against Wilson. I still remember this. Like, we were both live for Top 8. And uh, it came down to da- Game 3 where I brainstormed and I drew three creatures. And he ended up resolving a Blood Moon and Terminusing at two life or something like that. And I was just like crushed. And I was like, all right, I'm just like, I'm going to focus a little bit more on this because I never tested against great Miracles players. Yeah. And that day too, it was, it was rough. Yeah. So I drove out with Pat and Jerry. Uh, I was just starting to like be good friends with those guys. And it was an awesome trip. We had a sick house with Joe and, and a bunch of other people. And that that event was I decided like after after uh, Jersey I wouldn't miss another Legacy Grand Prix, and unfortunately I did miss Seattle because I had something else going on that weekend. But 
that was at the end of 2015. And I also didn't really love the metagame, so I was fine with it. But uh, I, I, thought, I thought Seattle was after Columbus. I could be wrong, but I thought that that was how it worked. Cause... So I thought I thought Seattle was the winter after Columbus because I remember I was still coaching basketball in the winter, and I wasn't able to make it to anything in the winter. No, so there's two Seattles. There's 2015. Oh, okay. There's November 2015. Yep. And then there's uh, April 2018 that I went to with uh, Jerry and Wilson and James. Okay. So yeah. It was uh, Grand Prix Columbus. I loved Columbus, man, as a city. That was, was the second time I've been out there, actually. But oh, that was, was great. We yeah, stayed in the dude. short north. Oh, um, sick. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I that city is great for tournaments. It really is. I love Columbus, but that was. Uh, I really liked the deck. You know, we were both on band at that point, and I tore through a uh, trial. And got got a couple buys, and then came in against two great miracles pilots and O2, and just fell apart. So that kind of sucked, but that was uh, that was a really fun tournament. I, I really liked where the metagame was at that point in time. You know, it was Aldrazi and Miracles were probably the the one and two deck, but I really liked our spot uh, attacking the rest of the metagame. Grixis Delver would probably be the third deck, and then Infect, but. That was uh that was another time that the metagame was was good again. You know, we got rid of Cruise and Dig, and we were in a good spot. Yeah, I really I really liked the format back then. Like, obviously, I, I did pretty well when I was playing the deck that we were playing. But I, that was another time that I really loved playing Legacy. Mm-hmm. And then the the rest of the year, we're on to some some sets now that really didn't impact legacy that much and i honestly don't remember what order these sets go in anymore it's like shadows over in the strad uh which what what's the most impactful card from shadows like uh tireless tracker i mean i, I remember working grand prix and like ripping open a bunch of boxes back then i mean maybe lily of the last hope that's eldritch moon yep yeah okay last so hope. yeah sorry yeah, Collective Brutality and Last Hope from Eldritch Moon are like one or two ofs. Yep. Really not that much. And then we go into like Kaladesh and Omencat. You know, not not really a whole lot. Like some parasitic mechanics. No, I think they realized that in 2011, 2012, like the power level was tuned up way too high. Yeah. And they spent a long time trying to like tone down what they were doing. Yeah. And I, so. I have this whole theory about like the printings of 2011, 2012 where... They recognized problems and they were actually trying to print answers to them, but their their printing was delayed like 18 months. So they had some stuff like scavenging ooze that came out that that could have been like an attempt and an, uh, grab diggers cage, like attempts to deal with Vengevine. Mm-hmm. But the community had started like freaking out about survival of Vengevine, so they didn't actually get time to get those printings. Right. So they they had everything in development, but the developmental pipeline it takes a long time to get those cards out where now yeah. like they would be able to put those into the format way quicker. And I actually feel a similar way about misstep with mystical tutor, but I think that was just a big miss in general. Yeah. I think even if you print misstep as an answer for mystical tutor, like right. you're fucking up the rest of the format too hard to let that card go. Yeah. So that was, uh, we're, we're in the middle of this Goldilocks period though, because You've got the the reticence to ban dig, 
which lasted too long, which lasted like, you know, 10 months too long or whatever, or at least six, I would say conservatively six months too long without banning dig. Yep. And other than that, we've gone from the end of, uh, the end of 2011 through the top ban in April, 2017. So almost six years where only those 10 months of dig not being banned are a problem for the format. In my opinion, there's five out of six years are good, good legacy. Yep. And then actually 20, okay, we'll get to it, but things, things don't start to go well after that. No, no. Then we, then we are on the downtrend again, but the other printing from 2016, the end is Leovald. Man. Do you remember people playing against Leovald for the first time? Bro, of course I do. I fucking I immediately adopted that card. And... Uh, I think I played three the first tournament that it was legal. Well, maybe we, it was two. Well, we we both went to Louisville with almost the same sixty, right? Well, we... I think I played an SCG before Louisville. Oh, okay, right. Oh, yeah. Well, you were on camera against Joel set, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Uh, I wasn't and there. I had I was a watching. lands opponent port me twice in punishing fire in my noble hierarchy. While I was <laughs> and I was like, yes, 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 give it to me. <laughs> um that's right i forgot about that man yeah but that uh what is that philly probably or something like that uh no it was ball it was baltimore okay yeah yep. i stayed with friends in a hotel in camden camden yards not the nice part there were gunshots <laughs> and uh yeah so that was my that was my pre-tournament pre hey. pre-tournament sleep and you did really well in that tournament, obviously. I, I don't remember how you finished, but I remember you beat the Joe Lissette, so. I think I think it was fifth. I lost to John Orr in top eight. Right, that's right, yep. That, that fucking bug deck. I anyway. remember now. So at, at some point we went to the Invitational together at this point, right? So the, yeah, the Invitational was after Columbus before Baltimore. Because that was like that was a streak where I was like, wow, like I'm I might not be shit at this game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was a really good time. We went down with Charlie, and you won the Modern Open. Yep. And I got to I day two the Envy, which kind of sucked because uh, I had like a six two day one and then like a four four day two, so I didn't even cash. And I got to play the Legacy Classic and cash that. That was cool. But uh, obviously, you won the Open. That was the big story there. And we decided to go to Louisville for the the ice storm first weekend of of twenty eleven or twenty seventeen rather with your pregnant wife home alone during an ice storm. Uh yeah. The, okay, so looking back, <laughs> looking back, I was like, no, I can keep the streak going. I'm gonna go to this Grand Prix because it's a thing to do. And she was pregnant, home alone during a snowstorm, and. Uh, the snow removal that I had sort of thought I had taken care of didn't really come through. And that was a fucking mess of a weekend. So looking back, that was a time where I definitely should not have gone. But <laughs> I had, I had gone on such a tear that I was like, no, I need to capitalize at a Grand Prix. Like I ate one, nine owed top eight in an open, like one, one in open. Yeah. Yeah. It just it didn't it didn't work out for yeah, me. Yeah, you were on fire then. And we we both day two Louisville, but we just had bad day twos, right? Yeah, I think I think I I think I was X and one or X and two going into day two. Yeah, it, it was, was a really good day one, and then I think you were X one, I was X two. Yeah, it it was it was a really bad day two, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I think um, 
that was uh I, I always i always remember like we were sitting there when like the storm really started to hit because we had just gotten out like before the storm and like thank god our flights took off and everything and then yeah like when we realized what was happening because remember my wife was on call and she was like half an hour from the hospital and didn't have my jeep or anything and i was just like oh fuck i'm an idiot like what did i do Yep. And we were like freaking out, like not thinking about magic, just like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah, we both we both had that going on. And I remember Leovold was 50 bucks and it had been Bandit Commander. And I was talking all this shit to people who were saying that Legacy didn't move card prices <laughs> because it was 30 bucks and it got Bandit Commander. And then it went up to 50 bucks in front of a Legacy Grand Prix. And I was like, all right, look at this. I remember I bought all of gaming except as Leovolts for yep. eight dollars. Yes, you did. I, I was there that day. That was the that was the first time I really said hi to you. Actually, was that day because it was summer break. You were on summer vacation, so that's why you were there. Yeah, that's right. I got to I got to go there and play. I remember you also bought all the Tolarian Academies. <laughs> for uh, 20, for because at each. that moment I was building vintage, and I think that they had academies for twenty bucks. Yeah. And I, I looked at like the price spread and I was selling a lot of cards then too. So I wasn't still working for the card store that I used to work for, but like I I was still making enough money off of buying and reselling to where I was doing that. Yeah. I mean, dude, I got my Mox Diamonds there for thirty five bucks. So like yep. it's just what it was back then. There was yep. like there was a lot of spikes that were always happening and you know, imperfect information you could trade off of and it was a different time really. Yeah. It seems stupid because we still have we had the exact same resources we have now, but if but you, people weren't using them as much. Like if you were involved in like Facebook chats and knew the new decks and stuff, you were way ahead of the market. Yep. Now I feel like I don't know why that's not the case. It's well, part, I think it's just not us anymore. Right. We're yeah. not the people that are involved in it. There are people who are, who probably feel like we felt back then. But do you see cards spiking like that? Like maybe it's in Pioneer now. Uh, I mean, well, Pioneer completely changed, like the the mechanics of format pricing because it's a new format. But right. I don't see things like that happening in Legacy. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time. Yep. The closest thing I would say in the last year was like Academy Rector or something silly like that, like jumping from like twenty to sixty. You know. Okay. It really hasn't been a lot. But anyway, so that was that. That was uh that was the beginning of twenty seventeen. There really weren't many printings in 2017 that changed anything. It was like the Amonkhet Ixalan era. Yeah, but I, I mean, the big thing, the big thing was miracles going. Yeah, April 2017, somebody puts a pizza box outside of Watsi that says, "Please ban top," or ban Sensei's top actually, and uh, and they did it. They they finally banned top, gave it the axe, even though it. It hadn't really dominated like the top eights and stuff. It was I, I firmly believe that they were right to ban something from that deck at that point in time. That was definitely the best deck of that time, and I was still sort of like sitting there playing the four color stone blade deck. But miracles was public enemy number one, and playing against counterbalance top was. I enjoyed the matches that came down to like predicting what was on top of your opponent's deck and playing the games really slowly. Yeah. But I can see how that mechanic wasn't something that they wanted people to play with. Right? It was pretty shitty, yeah. And yeah. it was the the triumvirate, I think, of counterbalance top and terminus. Because you couldn't get zoot out, you know. 
You couldn't yep. really get under the countertop because Termis would catch you up and then you're just, you're losing the late game against countertop, you know? Absolutely. So I, I did agree with the banning. I, I, I still don't, I still don't feel great about it being top rather than counterbalance or terminus, but is what it is. Yeah, I think uh, back then I argued heavily that terminus was the card that would have had to go. That's what I thought too. Yeah. And again, honestly, if they did that, they just would have picked up verdict, and the same thing would have happened. So they were probably correct in hitting top. Uh, probably, if not, yeah. then counterbalance. Probably, yeah. It hurts to admit, but yeah. 2018 now we're on to uh the the grixis delver days right this i is, mean this is when things got like boring right yeah i hate to say it but it, it kind of was I, I remember going out to grand prix seattle in april i was still playing a ton of legacy at this point i i just started my new job i was playing online for the first time i tested with uh wilson for that like that Grixis deck that he top 32 with at that yeah event. the basic heavy blood moon young pyromancer Grixis deck yeah 19 land Grixis control yeah and I did really well with it online but I I like o would a challenge and then picked up band 5-0 to challenge and got buys so I was like fuck man I, I guess I'm just playing band and it didn't go well for me I, I really was off the deck by that point in time but I should have just probably stuck with Grixis but yeah the Grixis Delver becoming the deck that it came that it became it really got me off band because i remember like playing that four color deck and just doing really well against the grixis delver decks like i think i remember playing against jonathan sukenik and having like a great match and he like he said some really nice things about how i played and he was playing the grixis deck and then after after about six months of the grixis players understanding what our deck was trying to do yeah it just like I went from being what I thought was like very favored to just being a huge dog. Yeah. And if I lost the die roll, I would I would want to just scoop the match. Yeah, it uh it, it did not end up going well. Yeah, it was very frustrating. And I, I felt like I kept running into the Grixis Silver players who were playing Stifle, which was the most abysmal version of the matchup in my in my opinion. I, I don't think I ever beat the Stifle version of the Grixis Silver. And mm-hmm. I kept even though it was only like less than one third of the players were playing that version i kept running into it and losing and i just got off the deck eventually yeah i i think this is where we both sort of like transitioned to where we put down the four color deck and i picked up infect i think yeah well so this is the part where our podcast starts yeah that's right so like even though we, we talked about oh this is where legacy got boring this is where we're talking about it every week can you, <laughs> can you believe that we're like here 70 78 episodes later and there's still people who are listening yeah bro that's pretty wild honestly it so one of my graphics for uh for the show notes are podcasts man and like the the i think leaving a legacy is a huge part of the story of of legacy for this decade like the facebook group that became of it and sort of the, Ab- cult, the culture absolutely. around it. And it I could mean, be, that, that got us together, right? Yeah, and it could be living in Boston, too. That's, that's part of that. Like, you know, we're friends with these guys, and we're going to these tournaments, and this is this is our scene, you know. So, leaving a legacy, I went back and looked. The first episode, curiously, episode five. I don't know how the first four, but... Well, Bob was on, like, episode two. Well, he was on episode five. Maybe he was on episode two as oh, well. Oh, okay. But... Uh, 
this is October of 2014. And previous to this, uh, Everyday Eternal had started, uh, their first episode was in June of 2013. So they actually were out first, but it was a totally different cast than they have now. And there was like some sporadic breaks in there. So they they technically, I guess, have, have hold of the, the first of the, the big podcasts. But Leaving a Legacy, I think, it, for consistency and everything, October 2014 coming around, that was a big part of it. Then the Brainstorm Show, February 2015. Rest in Peace, July 2018. Toss Talk, October 15, 2015 to November 2017. Eternal Dirtles, 2016 to present. And our podcast, July 4th, 2018 to present. Man, I, I miss Tuss Talk. <laughs> I do, like, I talk I talk a little shit on Twitter about some comments that they make, but I, I miss them. Bro, how funny is it that they're still talking about banning True Name, and I haven't seen the True Name in months? Well, you know, I know some, but some people... It really yeah, did... They really when, hang on. When I looked at the metagame effect of True Name... I do kind of see how it broke up that golden age, that triumvirate of Stoneblade, Maverick, and Delver. It actually well, Maverick, invalidated. Maverick it. kind of became unplayable. With right, around. exactly. So I kind of do understand that that point, but yep. it's just sort of like that time has passed, right? Yeah. That ship has sailed now, but it is. Uh, I do miss that, and actually, I noticed when I was looking at Everyday Eternal that Sean is on some of the earlier episodes. So I might go back and listen to those. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that, yeah. But he's on, like, a, I don't know. I saw that he's on episode one and another one, so. You know, check that out. But, yeah, Definitely. one one of the trends I wanted to look at was the price of Underground Sea. We mentioned it started out at, like, 60 to 70 bucks at the beginning of this decade. Got up to Grand Prix Vegas 2017 whatever you want to call it 600 you know it depends if you're a buyer or seller but i think i think people were buying that card for like seven to eight hundred dollars at that event yeah and honestly the the price trend was like just going up by like dollars a week it was like this extremely healthy growth until 2016 it just takes off like a rocket ship and then it, it pulls back pretty quick and now it's sort of falling off a cliff right well, I mean, I don't want to say fallen off a cliff, but like the demand for the format isn't there anymore. And I know that everybody listening right now is like, no, I demand those cards, but widespread player consumption for Legacy is down. And I mean, it's going to be until something changes. It's great that people are like putting together Legacy tournaments that aren't SCG, that aren't Grand Prix. Like Jeremy Aronson's tournament sold out in a week, mm-hmm. and it, that's like that's like four or five months away, but we're we're not going to see that legacy growth that happened from 2010 to 2016 again. Like, right? We're just not. And yeah. maybe if Wizards repeals the reserve list, something like that happens where we see that boom in players again. But it it's going to be a completely different format now. We have the perfect storm of the format being affordable, the cards being really great and interactive to play with, and new people being really excited to explore the format, right? Like, yeah. people were still exploring. It, it, I, I don't want to say the legacy is solved, but, like, there are people doing some interesting things that 
weren't optimal. And that definitely made for like a wide and diverse metagame. Yeah. And like Modo, as much as as much as I love it and love to use it, there's a, a Modo ruining aspect of it where people have are testing so much and have, you know, access to information so quickly that, you know, the formats get solved quicker. There's also like a people not being willing to play suboptimal decks because it's more of a transactional thing now. Like, you know, it costs a lot of money to lose on Moto all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Oof. Oof. No, for real, real, like, wrapping this year, though, I wanted to say thanks to uh, the friends I've talked to a lot this year. Nate's one of them. uh, James, Rich, uh, you know, people that the people that I've had like long conversations with and the, really the reason I still play legacy, you know, is, is about the people more than, more than the game. Even though I do love the game still, I love legacy games. I look forward to legacy tournaments, but if there aren't any on the horizon, I'm still part of the community because of the people. Yeah. I, I completely second that and huge shout out to Pat and Jerry. Yeah. I know. Obviously. Like, I mean, we, we wouldn't be here without those guys. We wouldn't have met each other, and we, we definitely wouldn't still be doing what we're doing right now without the support of those guys, and it's it's awesome. Yeah, and those are just some of my best friends now, like in life, you know? So it's, it's crazy how that happens. But um, well, who would you say, I mean, artist of the decade is obviously Kanye, but what about athlete of the decade? Athlete of the decade? Yeah. Oh, man, okay. So, I mean, is it LeBron James or is it Steph Curry? It's got to be. It's got to be LeBron, I think. You think it's got to be LeBron? I guess. I mean, I don't watch NBA basketball, but I okay. Mean, so I'm thinking. Like... Yeah, I'm thinking it's probably Steph, because LeBron was more established before 2010, right? Yeah, okay. So he won his first Grand Prix in 20, 2006, or first championship, rather. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that sounds right. Steph Curry started playing in... Uh, in when? Mid-Davidson or some shit like that. Yes. Yeah, the Davidson sounds right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I honestly can't say. I would guess, like, 2013, but I don't know. 2009. Anyway. Okay, anyway. I, I would say Steph Curry. Was it 2009? Holy shit, dude. I'm yeah. old as fuck. So I'd say, I'd say Steph Curry. We can't say Tom Brady because Tom Brady has dominated two decades. Um, Serena Williams, maybe? Via, uh, one of the Williams sisters? I don't know. The problem, bro, if Serena Williams didn't have a twin sister, I think she would absolutely be the athlete of the decade. The problem is that, like, I I always, I do this thing where I'm like, I, I have to have her accomplishments because I can't remember what Serena did and what Venus did. So I just, like, divide it in half. But really, I think it's it's all been Serena lately, right? Well, honestly, I, I have no idea. I just I know that they, <laughs> like, they completely dominated. So you have to consider them at least. So we'll go, we'll go LeBron, Serena, Mark Sanchez? 
Yes, my, you know what? Let's go with Mark Sanchez. There we go. The butt, the butt fumble is the number one play of all time in my book. <laughs> it probably is like the most watched highlight, right? Do, do we call it a highlight? <laughs> I mean, do you remember where you were when that happened? Because I do. Uh, I, I do not. I do not. But, but uh, honestly, if we were gonna look at like the theme of the decade, I would. I do think. Like looking back, I know a lot of people would call this the decade of modern because modern came about in 2011 and it's kind of over now. Yep. But I think it, it really lines up perfectly to be the decade of legacy, too. And even though you get like the, you know, the, it's, it's not exactly the front end or not exactly the back end, I do think you capture the whole story, like the, the, from where you want to pick it up to where you want to end it. Like I feel like that's really ca- encapsulated in the decade. But I think, I think the, it's a, a very good way to, to say that. I think the theme of the decade, though, would be reprints. Like, this would be the, the master set decade. Yeah, and I mean, like, they kind of screwed that up at the end, right? But they, it was it was the decade of reprints. I don't know if they sure. screwed it up, honestly. Like, you don't I, think I, that I, ran, and you don't think the 2019 oh, yeah. put, oh. a, put a... Yeah, but that's, that's different, man. That, that's when they'd run out of reprints and they started like front printing okay but like what i the way that i looked at it was they couldn't do this forever because it was chronicles right and like we'd seen that and so i was like when they first did modern masters and then they did it again and they started like increasing the frequency and going all these different directions it's like you're burning through equity so now they're like front loading the masters where they do these like super collection boxes or whatever so they're like selling the master set while they're selling the main set. And yeah, I think that Modern Horizons was actually just a step too far, right? Like, I think everybody everybody has agreed that War of the Spark and Modern Horizons pushed the boundary a little bit too far. Yes, absolutely. I think that they, they really put the car in front of the horse, like printing directly into these formats and tinkering with the delicate balance that had been established over you know 10 15 years that that is really even if you have perfect understanding of what's going on you can't understand how the players are going to use the cards so it's like i completely agree it's too troublesome so i think that they missed a lot and uh yeah but I, i do think that like i remember when i was playing deathblade Everybody talks about like the reserve list or whatever, but every card in my deck, if I was playing the shitty version, had been printed since 2015. Like there was a reprint of Death Right, there was a reprint of Hierarch, there was a reprint of Stoneforge, there was a reprint of True Name, you know, there was a reprint of Lee Evolved. Like every card had been reprinted in the last two years, and I was like, they're definitely making money off Legacy, you know? Yep. So yeah, that's what I would call it. So who would you call the player of the decade? Oh, player of the decade. Owen? I think it's between Owen, Caleb Durward, uh, Reed Duke, and Travis Wood. Okay, so on it like when I say when I say Owen, I didn't mean that like sarcastically because of like the No, uh, I know. Everything I know. that happened. I'm, and I kinda took a joke, but Yeah, like for, for him up until that he was one of the most consistent pro players and he was just doing really well in all the formats he was playing. I think that I would probably vote for Reed. Yeah. Um, but 
maybe maybe somebody like Javier Dominguez with his performance recently with all of the changes like he wasn't around during the beginning of the decade but uh, I mean obviously he was but nobody knew who he was yeah uh he's been crushing it lately but I I don't know if he's a of the decade player so when I looked at the early tournaments dude Tom Martell was fucking dominant in 2011 through 2013 he's he has like all these legacy grand prix top eights and yeah he played he played like esper in in the top eight in atlanta or maybe it was like a blue white blade deck but yeah up until up until 2013 2014 he was one of like the people but the people who really i think of i think of reed and owen being the most dominant players of of this decade yeah fair yeah cool man and uh yeah star city obviously had a lot to do with this story and it was uh it was a sweet time to live through man like you know playing legacy in this decade i was saying before like i had more fun in the early years of this decade but i i really had a lot of fun playing magic too and i i wouldn't trade it this was the best decade of my life hands down like I kind of grew up a little bit, got married, started a family, had a kid. Like, everything, this was 100% the best decade that I've lived. Magic was definitely a part of that. That's awesome, man. How was your Christmas, by the way? Oh, it was the best. So, I've seen Christmas through a little kid's eyes. Because obviously, like, he had a Christmas last year, but he really didn't know what was going on, right? This year, it was fucking amazing. Like, getting to see his reactions to everything and, like, his amazement and excitement and wonder. And, like, how how excited a little kid gets when his uncle gives him, like, a, a little toy plane. Like, <laughs> not not anything crazy, but just, like... Seeing a kid open up a box and his eyes get wide and run around the room screaming with a plane above his head. This is like, it was that the best. That's awesome, yeah. It was the best. So I, I'd i been kind of down on Christmas, but this completely re-energized me. And I, I love it just because of how much my kid loved it. Yeah, that's, that's sweet. Did you guys, did you, were you able to make it out to see the Elf of the Hydrant Boomers? Wait, say it again? Did you were you able to see the elf that hides from boomers? Uh the elf that hides from boomers. Oh, you're trying to say I'm a oh. <laughs> no, we missed him. He must have been that's, on Penn Island. That's too bad, man. Yep. Maybe next year. That was sweet. I got my uh three year old sister a nerf Fortnite gun and she shot up the manger, like the nativity scene. <laughs> and my <laughs> my stepmom freaked out. Yeah, so my my wife has a rule: no guns. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I no actually guns. think my stepmom has the same rule. So this this was a gift <laughs> that was also a test. So yeah, I, uh, good, good for you. <laughs> that's gonna be my memory of this Christmas. Like when I look back at it, the sh- her shooting up the wise man. But it was a good time, man. It was a it was a nice Christmas. That's awesome. All right, bro. Ready to wrap it? Yeah, we're ready to wrap it. I I wanted to thank everybody who has been listening to us for oh bro, the, listener of the decade. We forgot to do our listener of the decade. We have oh we have so many. I think we just have one. Who is it? Sugi. Absolutely. 
I think it has to be Suki. He was the first person who reached out with feedback about the cast. Like, episode two or something. Like, he started, like, hitting me up about, like, you know, critiques or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I, I would definitely give it to Sumitan. He also has the best job title. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he absolutely does. Yep. When I mean, he told me that he was a penetration tester, I wasn't sure how to react. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know it was a thing. No, obviously there there are others. You know, we got we got Tom, we got uh, Hack, we got Rich. There's a lot of people that that deserve credit on that. But the fact that Rich listens to every episode still blows my mind. Yeah, uh, yeah, and Rich uh, spoonholes too. I there's there's I, I really like uh, a lot of the people that we've met through the podcast, but. Without getting too sentimental, Ian18125 on Twitter. T Smiley MTG. We got we got a little bit of time left with Ian here in Massachusetts. Bro, yeah. We gotta take advantage of it. How crazy is that, man? It's crazy. You're gonna be in Cleveland next year. Yep, it's true, bro. I uh, I got pulled over today actually. I was playing some legacy with uh with our boys in Acton, and for the third time ever I got pulled over in Acton. And the cop checked my license, it was a Connecticut license, and he's like, why don't you have a Massachusetts license? So I was like, oh, I was going to get one, but I'm moving to Cleveland in a few months. And he felt so bad for me that, that I was moving to Cleveland that he didn't write me a ticket. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. That's actually a true story. I, I, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, dude. So, uh, deadformatcast at gmail.com, deadformatcast on Twitter. Holler at your boys, and let's wrap this decade, motherfuckers. Have a great and awesome New Year's, everybody. We'll see you next week.